0: just lost her dad yesterday. There's a lot of hurt out there. And we oftentimes do not treat those who are made in the image with the dignity that they deserve. And speaking of God, sometimes we look at this world and we go, if God made it, and He's good, then where is He? How, How did we get into this mess? And what is his plan to fix things? This summer we're entering into a new series about Old Testament covenants that point to the New Testament, to the gospel that's coming in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, though. Sometimes the Old Testament gets a bad rap. Because we think that God has a personality change. He's just this old curmudgeoning, you know, wrathful guy in the old testament and he gets a changed personality when jesus shows up no he's the same person and he has a plan for good for mankind for men and women who are made in his image in fact jesus says you know what when you read those things they're about me these covenants he says in john 5 30, Uh, 39. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But These scriptures, they testify about me. It's pointing to me. And you may say, well, how does that work? Well, I, I guess the best illustration that I have, if you've ever driven on the plains of the United States, like over Nebraska, right? God's country, by the way. But You get into Nebraska, right? And then you're going down into Colorado, and you're on the plains, and all of a sudden you start to see the Rockies on the horizon, right? And there are just these kind of lumps, bumps on the horizon. You can't really make them out, but you keep driving, and you keep driving, and you get a little closer, and you're able to start to distinguish one mountain from another, and you're getting more definition. And then you start going up into the mountains, and you start seeing the peaks and the valleys, and you start seeing the snow caps and the tree line, and you start to see the rocky faces, and it's amazing, right? But what was once just this lumps on the horizon now have definition. It's the same thing with Jesus. We see these kind of lumps, if you will, in the Old Testament that start to take definition as Christ gets closer and closer. And we call these things covenants, There are promises to people that are going to come true, but they are based not so much on the ability of the people on the other side to keep those covenants, but on the character and the power of God himself. So today, we're going to see the first word of good news, first word of gospel, but interestingly enough, it comes in the midst of a lot of bad news. A lot of bad news, as Don read earlier today. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive into God's Word for us today in Genesis chapter 3. So Lord God, you have made us in your image, and you said it was good. You said it was very good. And what happened in the garden is no surprise to you. But would you open the eyes of our heart and would you give us grace today to believe your word, to see where you're at work in the past, in the present, and will be at work in the future. So Lord, we just commit this time to you and ask you to help us believe you and help us to respond to you in faith. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So Genesis is the book of beginnings. And as Maria in the sound of music says, let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. First three chapters, we see these things. And we're asking the question, how did we get here? How did things get so messed up? And how do we get out of this? We see that God makes man in His image. Male and female. We kind of get a more detailed account of that in chapter 2. And we see that God, he makes man in his image, and then he gives him stewardship, dominion over all creation, to be his regent. And he places them in this perfect garden. And in this place, they have an unlimited supply of food, because there are trees there that are producing food for them. And they have an unafraid security. They're walking around naked. And maybe you're saying, oh, that's an interesting thought. But you know what? They have no fear of sunburn, of bug bites, of beating road rats, whatever it is. They're not afraid because God is their protector. And they are walking around also with unfettered access to God. He comes and visits with them in the cool of the day. And they have an uncomplicated command. One rule. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. Don't eat that. You're going to die if you do. But everything else is good. It's fair game. Go for it. Enjoy it. One rule. You got one job. Don't eat of that. Okay? Got it? Everybody got that? One job. That's all you got to do. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Why does he do that? Because he's saying to the man and woman, do you believe me? Do you trust me? That I am good? That I am giving you good things? That I can take care of you? It's a good question for us to ask too, isn't it, for ourselves? Do we believe what God says in his word? Do we trust him? Do we think we're smarter than him? The answer to that question has serious repercussions, as we're going to see. Verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, And pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. One rule. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and ate it. One rule. Yet the first problem is? Problem of a talking snake. Right? I mean, this is not normal, folks. This is not Narnia. Snakes don't talk. Here's my point. The original readers would have looked at this and said, there's something going on here. Snakes do not talk. What is happening here? And for an original reader, the symbol of a serpent is that of chaos, is that of cunning, that of Wisdom and sorcery and divination. If you look at Pharaoh's headdress, there is a snake on his forehead. And that is to to note that he somehow has access to wisdom of the gods. So this is no ordinary snake is what's being communicated. Second of all, this snake is not saying, Hi, I'm Sammy Snake. No. He's not introducing himself. He is entering into a theological debate about the truthfulness of God. Think about that. Why would a creature who's supposed to be under the stewardship or dominion of the God's image bearers question the veracity of the Creator? Unless there's something more going on here than originally thought. I don't know that Eve, or the woman, had fully known this. But we know it, the scripture affirms it, and it goes all the way to Revelation chapter 9. It says, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan. And by the way, Satan is more of a title than a name. It means adversary, who leads the whole world astray. Okay, so that's his M.O. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with them. And then in the same chapter, the next, next verse, he is called the accuser of the brothers, or the believers, who accuses them before God day and night. He's accusing them of sin. So we have an adversary who uses deception, and his goal is to accuse them before a holy God. See God, they messed up, you need to punish them. You gave them one rule, and now what are you going to do, God? But it's interesting, as he approaches the woman, his strategy He starts out by kind of misquoting God. And say, implying that God is holding out. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? Well, the woman right away says, "Well, no, no, wait a minute. We have some freedom here. We may eat from the, from the trees in the garden, but God did say. You must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it, or you will die. Now that little, you must not touch it, that's a little extra. I wonder if Adam kind of said, you know, hon, don't, do don't even touch that. The serpent comes back, and he implies again that God is holding out. He says, you will certainly not die. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. And the temptation is too great. And the half-truth prevails. Because they will be like God, knowing good from evil. But it's not going to be wisdom. It's not going to be discernment. It's going to be regretful experience. Oh, now I know what it is to do when God called me to do good. It'll be a regretful experience. And unfortunately, the woman listens to the serpent, and she eats. And Adam, or the man who's right there, listens to the woman, and he eats. And no one listens to God. Again, I ask the question, do we listen to God? Do we believe Him in His Word? Do we think that He is being truthful? Do we think He is telling us the truth about ourselves, about Him? Or do we second-guess Him? Or think that we're smarter because we've progressed, because we have technology, we have science. And by the way, God is not anti-science. It's good for us to look into how God has designed things and see His magnificent wisdom there. But here's the funny thing about those things, is that we delve into them and then think, I got this figured out. I don't need you, God. We got this. Or maybe there is no God. He really has no say in how I live my life because we figured this out. We are as smart or smarter than God. But you know what? The evening news would tell us something different, wouldn't it? Because we've never been more advanced, never been so more educated, never been so technologically advanced, and yet we are just creating more ways of doing evil. And what we see next is the playing out of sin and disobedience. And this is just a quick survey, so hold on to your hats because I'm going to rifle through it pretty quickly. But it affects everything. Number one, shame. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. What God once guarded, protected, it never was a moment of self-consciousness or comparison. And now you feel exposed. Vulnerable. Embarrassed. No longer presentable before God. No longer presentable before each other. And so they sow fig leaves to try and cover it up. It's just a little death that's taken place. Number two, fear. Verse eight, the man and the woman heard the sound of God, the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God in the trees. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Up to this point, Adam and Eve had not known fear. Why would they? They've experienced the goodness of God and all of His care. And they only had one rule. But they violated it, didn't they? They had broken it, and now they're in fear of God finding out. How many of us have been given instruction, and we decided to violate it, do something different—whether that's speeding on the highway or playing baseball in the living room with mom's china? We're kind of fearful being found out, right? Especially if we break something. We have fear of being found out. It's kind of like the 1983 movie, A Christmas Story. Where Randy, the little brother, is weeping for his brother Ralphie under the kitchen table. Because Ralphie has gotten in a fight with the neighborhood bully, and in his rage, obscenities just poured out of his mouth. Shocking. Even though he heard it from dad. And little Randy says... Dad's going to kill Ralphie in fear, right? I think that's what we think something God's going to do to us. God's going to kill me. And God is the source of all justice. And we should respect and fear Him. And we have to give account to Him. But He loves us. But right now, because of this disobedience, fears entered and there's a little death. Number three, blame. Verse 12. Then the man said, The woman you put here with me, she, she gave me some fruit from the tree and, and I, I ate it. God, it was her fault. I, I mean... I mean, I was just standing there, and she hands it to me. And I, and I, What else was I supposed to do? Say something. Get in the way. Say, didn't God say, and this is what we're doing? But he says, and you gave her to me. So God, it's kind of your fault. See how the blame shifts? From Adam to Eve to God? And to the woman he says, and the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the the serpent deceived me and I I ate. It's the serpent's fault. He lied, God. He, he He deceived me. The devil made me do it. Basically, that's what she was saying, even though she had God's truth. Again, it's, it's your fault. And sometimes we, in our desire not to take responsibility, we blame God. Because He's sovereign and He can do anything, right? And so God, you allowed this, right? So it's your fault. Even though we know better. Proverbs 9, 3 says, a person's own folly leads to their ruin, yet their heart rages against the Lord. Blame casting. And a little more death takes place. And then there's a battle with the spiritual enemy. Verse 14, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat the dust all the days of your life. Now, this is a theology lesson. It is not a zoology lesson, people. And what this is pointing to is the serpent's certain defeat. And we're going to visit that promise at the end of this message, okay? About the one who will defeat the serpent. Verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and yours, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. We have a very real spiritual enemy, folks. We are fighting since the beginning of the garden. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and the principalities, Satan and his fallen angels. And their goal is to destroy, is to mar men and women who are made in the image of God. And he's going to do it through deception. He's going to do it through violent influence. He's going to do it through accusation. And he seeks, especially, to attack women. Have you ever noticed how women get attacked all the time? I don't think that's, I don't think that's a coincidence. Because Satan does not want to experience the wrath of the seed of the woman. And you can read about that in Revelation chapter 12. That's another sermon for another time. But it's part of the fall. There's a very real spiritual battle we have entered into, whether we like it or not. So we have to fight. Number five, physical pain in everyday life. Verse 16. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Now this specifically is aimed at women giving childbirth. I get that, okay? But here's the thing also, is that other physical complications are a result of the fall. The maladies that you're experiencing are part of the fall, whether that's allergies, whether that's kidney stones, whether that's cancer, it's all a part of the fall. And until Christ comes back and makes it right, we will suffer those complications. And I just want to say this one thing, this is a quick rabbit trail, but I want to kill some bad theology here right now, okay? I think some well-meaning men, I've heard a well-meaning brother telling his wife, in her childbirth. I don't want you to get an epidural because, you know, pain in childbirth is part of the fall. These are the consequences that you as a daughter of Eve experience. What's wrong with that picture? First of all, Jesus came to die for the curse, number one, okay? And number two, no husband is the arbiter of justice over his wife. only God is okay and if that 's your application, then you better not own a lawnmower or a John Deere mower as you 're tilling the ground or a uh, or a uh, chainsaw because you should live by the sweat of your brow so it's just that 's really bad theology and i I hope it 's shocking to you honestly, but some well meaning brothers have tried to apply that to their wife. And just don't do that. Don't do that. Okay. All right. Back to the, back to the, um, the sermon here. Next is conflicts and re, uh, relationships. Second half of verse 16. And your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, what's wrong with desire for your husband? Isn't that what we should have in marriage? We should have a desire for our spouse. It's how the word is used there. It is the thought of who's going to be in control. And the exact same word is used in the next chapter, verse 7, where Cain is upset with God and with Abel. Because his sacrifice is not being accepted while Abel's is. And God says to Cain, He says, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. It desires to control you. It desires to dominate you. And you must master it. That's how it's being used in this this passage. You're going to desire to control your husband, but he's going to rule over you. And indeed, God has called men to lead. But this is true of all relationships, is it not? Who's going to be in control? Who's going to call the shots? And so often... Our desire to be in control, our desire to have our way gets in the way. You see, the fall has affected our hearts. It's made us selfish. It's made us self-centered. And we need God to change that. You see, when I have the opportunity to Do premarital counseling with a couple. They're so in love. I mean, we could never have a cross word with each other, could we? Because she's perfect and he's perfect. And then I rudely tell them, you're marrying a sinner. And they're selfish. And by the way, you're a sinner. And you're selfish. And you're going to find out in your first months of marriage how selfish you both are. But there's good news if you allow Christ to rule and reign in your marriage, there's hope. You see, because marriage is the best attempt to love somebody. But you can't do it yourself. The fall brings conflict in relationships. But Christ came to redeem it. Number seven. The earth absorbs the curse. Verse 17. And Adam said, he, so to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Here's how this story should go if it was just plain justice. You sinned, you're cursed, you're dead. Game over, let's pray and go home. No. Because God is rich Mercy and love. And slow to anger. He has something else in mind. And he deflects the curse from the man to the ground. And it will be an increase of toil and frustration. Second half of verse 17. Through painful toil you'll eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. You see creation will not always cooperate with you there're going to be thorns and thistles there're going to be dandelions in your lawn you're going to have a powerpoint that doesn't work right all the time you're going to experience drought and famine and earthquakes and tornadoes and floods and hurricanes And you're going to forget stuff along the way. All of creation is affected. But cursed is the ground, not cursed are you. You see, creation groans waiting for its redemption. But redemption is coming. And the last, what we see, Is death an alienation from God? Verse 19, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now, death doesn't happen right away. Adam lives. In fact, he lives 930 years, and I don't know how the aging process went, but I I suspect it was a little slower than what we experience. But he's going to experience death, even the loss of a son, as one son murders another. He's going to experience that alienation and that sorrow, that sadness. And not only is he going to experience the alienation of death, but the removal of the man and the woman from the direct presence of God, where all they had known is his goodness. Now they're thrown into a world of harshness brokenness. So verse 23. So the Lord God banished them from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken and after after he drove the man out he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. I don't know how you're taking in all this. Maybe it feels like a punch in the gut right now. And that is actually how it should feel. I'm not trying to make you feel badly unintentionally, but this is the fall of man. This is where we had perfect fellowship with the living God. Everything was right. And then sin entered, our disobedience entered, and all the consequences that followed. And we should feel badly about this. We sh- it should be a punch in the gut. But even in the midst of all this bad news, there is good news. It's the first good news. As Neil kept saying, telling me, it's the Proto-Evangelion, which means the first good news in Latin. Okay, And that is a promise of a serpent-crushing seed. Back to verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, literally your seed and hers. And he, that is that seed, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Here's the promise that God is going to bring from the woman a seed, offspring, that is going to crush the effects of the deception of the serpent. Now the concept of seed is Pretty uh, constant in Old Testament covenants. We'll see that later. But this is a promise of good news. To reverse the curse, if you will. And Eve, in her excitement, when she first had her first child, Cain, She names him Cain, which means to acquire. And she says, with the Lord's help, I have acquired a man. She thinks, this is it. This is the seed. We got this, God. She's mistaken. Because God has much more to teach Adam and Eve. He has much more to teach all of humanity about their need for Him. But what are the weapons of the the serpent, of Satan? Number one, accusation. See God? They broke your rules. you got to punish them. You're a holy God, right? He's the accuser of the brethren. Weapon number one. And number two, death. That is the loss of life, the separation from God. And what happens in the fullness of time is that Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, Jesus, who is the Son of God, through the Holy Spirit, is planted in the Virgin Mary to come and be that seed that will crush the serpent's head. He's going to come to deal with sin. You know, the concept of atonement in the Old Testament is actually to cover, to cover over. And we see this even in this chapter in in Genesis 3, verse 21. Listen to this. This foreshadows what God's going to do. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Garments of skin? He didn't give them the extra skin. No, what he did was he put to death an animal and then put the skin on them to cover up their nakedness, to cover up their shame, to cover up their sin. You see, in order for sin to be covered, there needed to be a death. And we're going to be celebrating that actually at the end of this service here. But it's the truth of Second Corinthians 521, that God made Him, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. When we put our faith in Christ, when we put Him on, if you will, He covers our sin. Not only that, God the Father sees us as righteous. Number two, He came to deal with death. This is out of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, He too shared their humanity so that His death might break the power of Him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus comes. He tastes death for us. But because He is who He is, the Son of God and the Son of Man. He has risen from the dead. Death cannot hold Him. And He has victory. And all those who put their faith in Christ have victory. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me, even though they die, yet shall they live. He has broken the power of the grave. Yes, He experienced death and it probably... Maybe Satan thought he dealt a head blow, but it was just a wound to the heel. That's what's going on here. That's what Jesus does. And Satan's final defeat will end up in him being thrown in a lake of fire in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. And Jesus' full restoration will be in bringing a new Jerusalem. Heaven to earth, if you will. And it will be a physical Manifestation on this earth. And the scripture says in Revelation 22.2 that there's a river flowing through it and there is a tree of life which will be the healing of the nations. It will be a reverse of the curse. So even in this first chapter there's a foreshadowing of how God breaks through. Breaks through the fall of man. Breaks through the the rebellion of men and women is the first words of good news. What a wonderful thing to celebrate. Even though at this point it's really far off in the distance in this time in history. So with that, I'd like to invite the worship team up to lead us in worship and then we're going to enter into a time of celebration of what Jesus did to reverse the curse. Let's stand as we worship, please.